Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, we have Sean Roberts. Sean Roberts is a second-degree black belt who's been training Brazilian jiu-jitsu since 2005 at the young age of 15 years old. Sean first started training at Half Gracie Jiu-Jitsu under black belt Brad Jackson and then black belt Eduardo Fraga. At the time Sean was competing, there were very few teens his age to compete against, so he was competing against adults in most tournaments and beating them. He's competed in over 200 tournaments. Sean moved to San Francisco in 2009 as a purple belt to train under Half Gracie. Sean started training at Half Gracie San Francisco under Half and black belt Kurt Osiander. It was during that time that Sean was asked to fly to Maryland to compete in the legendary BJJ Kumite against 12 of the best brown belts, Gary Tonin, Keenan Cornelius, and many others from around the world, where he came in second place in the gi portion. This was shown as a reality series on YouTube, and Sean became one of the most recognized brown belts in the world. He was given his black belt by Half Gracie in March of 2013. He moved to Chino Hills to teach in September of 2013. I try to have guests on the show who I personally feel are very important to the art of jiu-jitsu. Sean Roberts is no exception. He's another one of those guys who's managed to avoid the hype train of BJJ personality despite winning droves of tournaments. Why don't we speak of his name more often is really a mystery to me. But I get it. He despises social media, and I get the feeling that self-promotion is barely on his priority list, if at all. Sean was a feared tournament competitor. He's one of the quickest, effective decision makers I've witnessed on the mats. It would serve many of us to go back and study his performances. Unfortunately for us, he recently announced his much-deserved retirement from serious competition at the ripe age of 31 to focus on his coaching at his impressive Chino California Academy called Sector. Fortunately for us, one can go to Sector to learn from Sean or see his upcoming instructionals on BJJ Fanatics. His debut instructional will be on his invention, the Giggler Sweep. Sean provides a ton of great insight on the episode, and it was an honor to have him on. Just a reminder to please give us a five-star review on iTunes and check out our Forever White Belt merchandise at teespring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt and become a patron by clicking the support button at the anchor.fm forward slash forever white belt webpage. You can also leave us a message on that same page and check out our Facebook page to get all the latest and check us out on all the socials by searching for Forever White Belt. And with that, I give you Sean Roberts. Thanks for uh, being on the show, Sean. No problem. For you people that don't know, this is part two for Sean, because we actually did a full interview before and lost it all. It was a corrupted file, huh? Yeah, it was just a recording disaster. Sean, you're a really important figure in jujitsu-wise in my book, especially in uh, California and historically in jujitsu in general. A lot of you may know from something called the Kumite, which Lloyd Irvin put on quite some time ago, which was really popular. A lot of future jujitsu stars came out of there. Keenan, Cornelius, Sean Roberts, and some other, a whole lot of other people. And what a special time it was. And also, uh, Sean, you, well, you got your black belt under, was it Half Gracie? Yeah, I got my black belt under Half Gracie, yes. So, Francisco, so I was yeah. training with him at the time. And were you training with Kurt Osiander as well, right? Yeah, I was training with Kurt. I've actually been training, I probably trained around like, I don't know exactly right now, but probably like six different gyms. All of them Half Gracie except for one. Well, so two, how, how many years one. do you think it's been? 16 years i started july 8th 2005. yeah so if you guys go into look up uh sean's or as you probably heard in the intro sean has won everything basically historically almost it seems like it's been a ton of competition man you are an accomplished jujitero 
and now an accomplished, actually you've been teaching for quite some time. You have a new academy, which we'll talk about soon in Chino, California. And I'd love, love to hear about that. Let's talk to the origin stuff a bit. You started obviously martial arts 16 years ago. We're saying prior to that, actually, you were yeah before did karate, actually. I did karate when I was um like seven or eight. And then I kind of just went through the belts, almost got my black belt, which was, took me like two years. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's different. Obviously, the black belt means something different in, in karate than it does in jiu-jitsu. Then I quit martial arts for a while, just doing other sports. I did basketball like heavily. Then just I wasn't good enough in basketball. Just it just wasn't going to make it. So there was no future for me in that. And then I want to do martial arts again. And I got started how like a lot of people got started. I got started by watching UFC 1. That was how I got started. My dad told me, look, I want you to watch this before you decide on the martial art that you want to take. Because I, I was pretty invested. Like I was, I wanted to do martial arts. <laughs> wow. Your dad showed you UFC 1 when you were a kid? Yeah. Wow. Well, no, he showed me that when I was like 15. That was a thing. Yeah. Okay. I, was an aggressive, I was an aggressive kid when I was like, little. That's so right. He didn't show me that because... um. Probably wouldn't have been good for me or the kids at school. I would have gotten in trouble for sure. Okay, we're going to touch on that aggression pretty soon here. I know also when we previously spoke, you talked about your attention deficit disorder issues, right? Your yeah. ADD issues and, and how how'd you gravitate to martial arts? Did that benefit your ADD anyways or, or you know what I mean? Did they well, work together I've, or what? I have ADHD, so I have the hyperactivity part. For me, and I think it actually helped me because ADHD and ADD is not like most people think. ADD and ADHD is more of like, I have trouble regulating my attention. It's not that I can't pay attention, I have trouble regulating it. So stuff that I don't want to do or like something that I'm not, not really curious about, it's almost impossible for me to pay attention to it. So like school would be very difficult unless you had like a gun to my head. I don't know if I'm going to be able to pay attention. But when it comes to something I'm actually interested in, I go above and beyond with my focus because mm. I'm trouble regulating it. So mm. for example, if I get stuck on a video game, I could play nine hours straight, like mm-hmm. easy, easy, like 12 if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. It's just that I get tired and I have to go to sleep. <laughs> Interesting thing too was watching some of your videos is the Rubik's Cube stuff that you're into. You do some crazy ass Rubik's Cube solving stuff. As someone who who has ADD too on a different sort of level, I don't have the H part. That's something that I could just never sort of stay with. You know what I mean? You have to be interested in it. If you're interested in it and have ADD or ADHD, you're going to do it. It's like a pit bull locking on something. It's It's pretty intense. Let's talk about your Rubik's Cubes <laughs> for a little I bit. I have uh, one right here. Let me see it. Let me see it. I'll, I'll go get it real quick. I'll go get it. Because you have crazy okay. ones. You you don't only yeah, do the standard one. You have round ones. You have all kinds of insane Don't freak ones. out, okay? Don't freak out. Don't freak out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> that's crazy. How many rows is that nutty thing? That is a nine by nine. Oh, my Let's God. I'm, Look I'm, at that. I'm doing the pattern right now. So. Uh, so all you people that are listening right now, yeah, this is a nine by nine cube. It's crazy. The dots on it are super small. The little cubes on the Rubik's yeah. Cube itself. You like and, little patterns and stuff. Wow. Sean just made a pattern for us right now. That's so sweet, man. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm always in awe when I see anyone solve one of those because I just knew that I just didn't have the stick to itness. Yeah, everyone could do it. Everyone oh. can actually do it. It's nothing like special. I think it's more of like a illusion, like of a smart person. Mm. You could do it. There's this kid at my at my gym. She's like six or something. She could do it. Wow. Not that one, but she could do the regular ones. The re- regular Rubik's Cube. Wow. That's impressive. Just, just a couple algorithms and that's it. And do you see a relation to jujitsu as well? No, <laughs> no, no to the uh, no, to the problem no. solving or anything like that. I always hear different um, things about that. People compare it to I, I chess that, and all this stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I don't see any crossover in that. 
just learning, being able to learn and stay open to things. Mm-hmm. It's always yeah. important to learn new things, not like just become like accept where you're at. You said you were pretty feisty when ever since you were a kid. One of the things we discussed before is when I was watching a lot of your early, I guess most recent that I could find YouTube footage and of your fighting. It's always been a very aggressive style of jujitsu, or it appears that way to me. How has your game evolved? If we're comparing myself to the Kumite, I'm way different. I'm way more technical, obviously, because I've yeah, had almost so 10 time. years. Yeah, so I, I look back on stuff. I'm like, okay, I was immature in this area. I wasn't developed in this area. Hmm. Um, I still have that aggression I can harness, like when it comes down to tournaments. Mm-hmm. So I could always pull that out, but I'm able to like, jiu-jitsu help me control it. One of the things that David Avalon told me, when we're going into a tournament together or when we're rolling even typically in a tournament, he's like, it's going to feel like a fight when you go with me. It's going to be that hard. And when I watch a lot of your competitive footage, it, it just looks like that. It yeah. just m- might be the dated footage, I don't know, but I'm, I'm just curious. In the gym, in tournament, I'm way different. Way different. I never pull out that like aggression. I never pull out that like tenacity in training. Hmm. Maybe the specific people I will, you know, when it's like <laughs> very, very tough matches, I'll, I'll, I'll pull it out. Hmm. But typically I don't. Let's go back to the Kumite. Let's talk about that. It's one of the things I wanted to discuss that we didn't never previously got to discuss. And um, how did that even come about? You know, it was such a, in retrospect, a historical event. Yeah. Well, it was all for Keenan. So, so obviously, yeah. Glitter and Helmet. It was a showcase, was right? Keenan. Keenan was like the best at the time. So it was just a tournament to fight Keenan. And I didn't see, I was like, oh, I'll do it. So, were people invited or did you volunteer? Or? Um, People were invited. Mm. So Keenan actually knew me, I guess, at the mm. time and said that like, he vouched for me. So then mm. that's kind of how I got on, on there. He's got a really but good eye for that. talent, I've noticed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even with the his Jujutsu um, X stuff. Yeah. But I didn't have the accolades of other people hmm. so much. So like from being half, we didn't revolve around time limits. We didn't revolve around like points. I never heard the word points when I was like learning. You never heard I never heard the word points. It was always like just submission, position, submission, position. Wow. It was never like, okay, you get the points here and then you do this to think that like you're moving or or this is a technique to do in a tournament to to hold the person and it was never, ever like that. I noticed during that event, how long was that that whole thing? Was it a number of days or what was it? Yeah. So it was three days. Um, okay. We had 11 fights. Some people have less because some people got injured, but that's how it goes. Mm. So 11 matches. You had to fight the per- each person once or twice. Mm-hmm. One in the gi and one in no gi. Mm-hmm. And there was different rankings. So there was a gi ranking and a no gi ranking. I was in the finals with Keenan on the Gi ranking, and then Gary Tarno was on the finals of no Gi ranking. God, Gary was in. I forgot. Wow. I was so tired, like, because uh, it was like eight matches a day or like six matches a day because he had to fight three people. So it was a lot, and there were all no time limit. And so it was just submission only. So that was like, oh, okay, that was kind of like what I was kind of used to, you know, since we never really talked about points at all the time. So, like, a lot of my matches and tournaments, I would lose by like advantage or a point or. It would be something where the person like, come on, man, like start moving and let's, let's do jujitsu. So mm. just, just sit around. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. yeah don't I, get me wrong. I got my ass kicked in tournaments, <laughs> but there was a lot of matches where I was like, dude, come on. Well, in several of those matches, what was really highlighted and a lot of people got in particular interested in what you were doing was that your calf slicer, yeah. you know, your, your entries and, and everything for this calf slicer became such a, such a thing. I, I, even I was like, oh my God, I got to incorporate this. And I'm like, oh wait, you can only do it in brown belt or whatever. How'd your calf slicer back then come about? Okay. So I had the calf slicer 
I had that created like me and my coach Brad Jackson created that in a garage. Like he used to do private lessons all the time. Uh-huh. So um, we kind of created that. I don't know how, but it happened. I was a blue belt at the time. Hmm. So I kind of had that in my back pocket for a long time. And uh, I battle tested it in tra- a couple tournaments. And then I don't know, felt like a perfect time to pull that out. Mm-hmm. At that time, it was like, okay, I'm going to do this. Now everyone's going to know it now. <laughs> so now it's going to be out there. So Wow, that paid dividends. It. You hit that a lot. It's on people. Some people, but it's weird. Sometimes it, it like really like hurts the person. So like that specific submission, I've accidentally, obviously every time I injure someone, it's an accident, but I've accidentally like really injured someone. Mm-hmm. Other times, like for example, like AJ Agazar, mm-hmm. like I don't know. <laughs> wow. It just doesn't tap. And so, so it's weird. Some people just tap and it hurts them so much. And other people just like just hurts maybe and they don't tap. Wow. So it's, it's slightly inconsistent sometimes. Mm, interesting. But if it hurts, it hurts. Like, yeah, me, yeah. it'll pop my knee. Can you talk about some of those times that you got frustrated? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, like, I've rage quit in a tournament once. <laughs> so, I was a blue belt and I did Grappler's Quest. And back then, tournaments were disorganized. So, if you go on at two, yeah. you actually go on at like six or seven. <laughs> yeah. So, what was happening <laughs> was. Um, <laughs> I was doing a gi match, and then my no gi match started at the same time. So I did gi, and then I switched to no gi. And then they're like, I was waiting for my no gi match, and they're like, oh, you're up right now. So I had to put on my gi, and I kept on switching back and forth. And then I signed up for like, it was like adults gi, adults no gi, and then kids advanced, or teens advanced, because I was a teenager at the time. And then I fought this really tough kid, and then my contact fell out. And then I was like, I just got up and walked out. I was like, super pissed. That my contact fell out. It was just like so small, but like it was just like the the point where I was like, okay, I'm done taking my gi on, putting my gi off. And then my contact fell out, I got pissed and left, and I oh, just forfeited. Man. I don't think I've ever rage quit since then. Point. I was so disappointed in myself. I can totally understand it. Yeah, we were all young men at one point, right? Well, you're still young, but let's talk about your time and your health and in the Bay Area. You're originally from Southern California, correct? Yeah. So. So I was, I was born, well, I was born in Northern California, but most of my life I was in Southern California. Right. And then you moved up. Why did you move up to Northern well, California? I was, so I was having a fall, kind of a small falling out with my instructor at the time. And then at the same time, it was only, it was me and my friend Ben Nail Dayu. She's the UFC, one of the UFC fighters, actually. Mm-hmm. He's very good. He's top ranked. It was just me and him training. And those wow. were like, he was my main training partner. I had other good training partners, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I moved up there to get training. Actually, that was it. Wow! And it was good because I I got to live by myself and kind of experience that. And how'd you even find good. out about coming to Northern California? Weren't there academies all over Southern California that you could have been to? Yeah, but I was loyal. I was just loyal to the team specifically. Like I helped Gracie. I was I already knew him a long time ago. We helped him like get into Disneyland because my sister worked at Disneyland. Mm-hmm. So I kind of knew him. And then I was just kind of loyal to the team. And you know how people from like, say, Autos in Brazil will be very, very good. And all of a sudden they'll travel to Autos, San Diego. Right. Because right. that's where they're, that was me. I in see. Southern California. And then I'll okay. be like, okay, I'm going to go to Half Gracie, San Francisco. And then I know things started blowing up up there at House, like in terms of the team, incredibly tough team when you guys were there and, and still super tough yeah. people. And then all the notoriety starts hitting because, you know, Kurt starts getting a lot of popularity too. Yeah. And I know, I think you were in a video, maybe two of his or something like that. Yeah. The move of the week. Yeah. Move of the week. Right. Yeah. What was that environment like? I love like? Kurt, man. Man, it was just, just training every day. I mean, I was there 
morning and night every day and everyone was tough and it was just like almost no mercy. Let's train super hard. I felt at the time that school was really intense. Anytime I went to tournament, it didn't feel as intense. It was always like a tournament. That's what it felt like to me. Yeah, I remember hearing Anthony Bourdain when he was going to come and do his mm -hmm. thing under Hanzo and everyone was warning him, man, you know, the warm-ups alone, the warm-ups were the big legendary thing about Half Gracie. And he actually, prior oh, yeah. to going out and filming, he got a personal trainer just so that he could deal with the warm-ups when he came to Half's <laughs> for filming. Yeah, <laughs> I never experienced those warm-ups. Like when, when we went, it was like the competitors did their thing and then the other people did their thing. So like the competitors, we didn't have our we didn't have like super tough warm-ups. I did strength conditioning on the side. <sighs> did the warm-ups so much. I had an instructor in the beginning that had super tough warm-ups. Like we even bought our running shoes one time. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. Then you ended up what? Going to the East Bay after the San Francisco and, and opening the school there, right? Health Gracie or something? Or were you a teacher so there? I started teaching in San Francisco. Well, mm -hmm. I started teaching at Walnut Creek, which is near San Francisco when I was yeah. purple belt. And then I had like that, that as a side gig for a while. And then I would teach another place as a side gig for a while. It was just always a side gig until I got my black belt. And then I moved down to Southern California. And then I had my own gym at that time. Well, I've had my own gym since I was a purple belt, but I always had... Oh, that's um, right. It sustained itself. So we just hired two instructors and the gym sustained itself and ran itself. And then I came back and started teaching there. So let's talk about sector. So you moved back to Southern California, to Chino, California specifically. What happens? So I came back. Um, so I was always under half Gracie. So we didn't have a falling out. But I wanted to do my own thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So I changed the name, um, changed affiliation to my own, and just started teaching and competing. And then I kind of ran into that problem of like, wow, it's kind of hard to teach and compete at the same time. Mm. So that's why I haven't been like competing as much. Mm. I've been so focused on the gym. And um, it paid off because we started growing a lot. And then we moved to a bigger location. And then COVID hit at the same time, which was fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, but now more people are training than ever. It's weird. I thought that COVID would really like set me back for a long time where it actually didn't. Like there's more people training now than there were before. Yeah. It's weird. I thought it was just a slow crawl to the finish line. Yeah. You know, this is sort of a consistent story that I'm hearing across the United States right now. I just spoke to Michael Lira Jr., who also he used to be with Autos, and he opened up Logos in, in Colorado mm -hmm. for his own thing, too. It's a very sort of similar thing, and he's seen a lot of influx as well in all these different instructors like yourself. And people, if you go to Southern California, go to Chino, California, check out Sector. It's a beautiful facility, man. I checked out the, you know, the video. The, there's a YouTube video on it, and I'm sure it's even more yeah. flushed out than oh, even yeah, that YouTube it. video at the time. Yeah. Uh, you, it has an arcade for God's sake in it in the second story and it's a massive massive a facility area. it's kind of a kids kids area you know so mm -hmm. what happened is at the old gym the parents would train and the kids would run around and, and you know how that gets oh, right the kids are just kind of too close to the mat and they're playing around they're getting too loud yeah so I was like okay I like video games they like video games they like to have their own little spot so we made it upstairs spot and they still get so loud sometimes I have to get like <laughs> I get mad sometimes like yeah. guys quiet yeah I made this place for you guys to be quiet like so you guys could play but not scream it's pretty cool the new gym is it's pretty cool so now is it just yeah, Sean so Roberts running the show or what's happening it's me and one of my black belts I had this project I was doing this is gonna be a crazy story so I had a project I was doing in Guatemala so take a step back actually one step further I had this thing called BJJ fault 
where I was just creating jujitsu videos just for a short while, you know, I kind mm-hmm. of just did it really quick and then I stopped. But I had an animation made and the person who made my animation, I met online. He was a purple belt in Guatemala. So I just became really good friends with him online. And then he invited me out for a seminar. And then I traveled around Guatemala. And then I was like, wow, like the level of jujitsu in Guatemala at the time was 20 years in the past. Wow. So I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get some of these guys good. So I created a sector, the team. Sector did not start in California. Sector started in Guatemala. Wow. So I, that was the team that I created in Guatemala. Wow. And basically whoever wanted to join the team, joined the team. And the team just wrecked. They did so good in tournaments. Everyone was super good. So my friend, his name is Andy Ramirez. He runs uh, Logo to Life. He does animations. Uh, stayed with me and eventually got his black belt. And now he is teaching with me here in California. Wow. What a story. That's amazing. Yeah. Is there still a sector? Guatemala? Well, the thing is that some of the, uh, another, the best guy from sector also moved here too. His <laughs> name is Tonio. He helps me too at the gym. Gotcha. So it's kind of like, I don't know, this project that was kind of like just for fun kind of came back and helped me. So now I have like my best friend from Guatemala here. I have another really good friend from Guatemala here and we're just running the gym. We're waiting for this guy. His name is Jackson Nagai. If you're familiar with his brother, Samuel Nagai, they're, they're, they're beyond good. Like I, I can't keep up with them. Wow. <laughs> Not many people can. So wow. he got second place in the, in the Pan Ams on his first try, on his first try at Black Belt. Lost to Ronaldo from uh, Autos. Autos. Two points. Wow. It was a tough match. So he's coming back in July. He's going to be teaching. So we got a squad going. Oof, what a team. That's incredible, man. So um, have you guys started competing? You know, everything started yeah, so, to sort of open up in California as of this recording. Tournaments are beginning to sort of start to talk about some dates and things like that within California. I know there's Arizona and yeah. some external states that are doing it now that people are going to. Yeah, like two weeks ago I had a tournament in Vegas. This week I have a tournament in Arizona, just coaching. Then I have a tournament here in Fullerton, and then I have one in Vegas. It's just I'm booked. So what, how's it feel being the coach? You know, at these tournaments versus like the you know Sean Roberts, the star competitor. I get nervous the same the same way. It's weird. Like my adrenaline starts to hit. I really want these kids to do good. You know, I really do. So I'm living vicariously through other people. That's awesome. My goal, I guess, is to create some create people to where like someone comes in, I'm like, ah, beat them up for me. You know, mm-hmm. so I gotta be people beat people up for me instead of mm-hmm. me doing it. But yeah, I got a good group of kids. I think I have one of the toughest group of kids um, wow. between 12 and 16, like behind AOJ and some other gyms. I'm like wow. there. So I That's have like awesome. four or five orange belts, which is crazy. I can't wait to see the sector team on the map. So tell me about your competition coaching style. How are you prepping them? competition classes or not, you know, day of the event, after the event, are you doing any sort of postmortem or what? So right now we're, we're geared towards kids' pants. That's Mm -hmm. the one that we're going for. It's in Florida this year. So we're going to have to fly out. So I have a group of kids that I think are going to do very well. This week is their last week to kind of chill. And then we're going to go full, full speed. They can't miss training. They can't miss, they have to spar every single round. There's no sitting out for them. Our classes at Sector are usually split in between beginner and advanced because our mat is so big. We could do a be, uh, one <laughs> class over here. We could do a beginner's class and advanced class on the other side. Right. We're going to be working hard with the kids coming up. Like I said, we have a really good kids team, especially mm-hmm. around like 11 to 15, 16. So mm-hmm. we get a lot of people that are really interested for their kids to become very good. And they'll mm-hmm. come by and we'll train with us. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're kind of like a hub in Southern California. You know, sometimes Costa Mesa for AOJ and then, then San Diego, that's too far away for some people. And then yeah. we're kind of right in the middle of like LA and 
So let's say post-competition, are you looking at video footage and saying, hey, Jane, I noticed in this, you did this, you should have did that, or or what mm -hmm. are you doing? Are you giving that kind of feedback? I definitely remember the mistakes. So once we start getting more kids competing, because right now it's just, we're testing the waters with not many competitors, we're going to be able to fix a lot of things. But I do go over stuff with them afterwards. If I see a, a constant theme of mistakes, we'll be working on that during class mm -hmm. a lot. How about in your competitions? How did you sort of iterate your game? I had a lot of private lessons growing going up through the ranks. So um, I took private lessons from white to purple belt. So my instructor, we would always watch footage and then analyze the footage. Obviously, any mistake I made would be highlighted by myself. And I was like, <laughs> oh, wow, I made this mistake. And it's like, in the gym, if you make a mistake, it's meh. But in the tournament, it really gets highlighted. And then mm -hmm. it gets highlighted, highlighted again by the film. And then mm -hmm. so we work on that. So I try not to make the same mistake twice. But when you get to black belt, it's, it's hard sometimes. Some people are so good that you're like, damn it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the same thing happens over and over. So just for the layman, then, you find more value or equal value in uh, privates than in uh, group classes as well. Do you think that's an essential part of like a serious Jujutero's game or or a, a serious practitioner, let's say? There's a couple things you could do if you're serious about jujitsu. If you're very serious about jujitsu and you're just doing class every day and you're not thinking about jujitsu after class, you're never be going to become extremely good. You have to either do it privates or you need to be practicing. You need to find a partner and be drilling the techniques, watching instructional videos or doing privates plus instructional videos at the same time. Hmm. You need to be studying. You can't just take class. People you have to compete. And you got to compete. That's what you're saying. You have to, yes. So how many days a week are, are you saying like someone needs to come into the just even general classes? How, what do you want to see? People do jujitsu for different reasons. So mm -hmm. There's a hobbyist, which is like makes up the most of the students. Oh, yeah. So training three times a week is probably the minimum they should do. Hmm. And they don't have to think about jujitsu like crazy afterwards. They'll, they'll get good. They'll, hmm. they'll become proficient and they'll become like when it's time for them to get like their brown or black belt, they'll become like the same level as other like hobbyists. Obviously, the competitors and hobbyists, there's different expectations, you know, so like a competitor purple belt is kind of better than a hobbyist black mm -hmm. belt. So what do you expect from a competitive purple belt then? How many days in the academy should they oh, be there? So they got to do twice a day, every day, plus strength conditioning, and they got to be studying. They got to live it. That's mm -hmm. it. There's no other way around it. I'm not talking about like sparring all the time or stuff like that, but mm -hmm. they got to be training. They got to be working on something. And you know, those people that train twice a day, they're always good. Always. You know, right. there's even hobbyists that train twice a day because they love it, you know, and they just mm -hmm. do it for a hobby and they're super tough. So selfishly, I'm going to ask about the guys, the masters. Do you have any old players, any sort of middle-aged players at, at Sector? Yeah, we got guys. Um, well, I think our oldest guy is approaching, well, he's 60. I think that's our oldest guy. It's mostly um, middle-aged families, you know, like the parents, like 30 yeah. to 40. What are your thoughts on stripes and belt colors? philosophies on it? Obviously, this is going to range, as you mentioned, depending on like your goals and your age. Yeah. And like how important are belts and stripes right time ago it'd be different mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. so now like already being a black belt like it didn't really matter all the belts and stripes you know because it was just you know i was always in a hurry to get my next belt and stuff too that's why mm -hmm. I, I trained so hard i wanted to get my black belt but i think it's good i think belts and stripes are good especially for kids the stripes are very important the stripes are very important for adults too i think it gives them something to work towards you know you don't want to download a program and then i have a progress bar you want to see your progress. You want to see how close you are to the next thing. And you want to see where you're going. So if you don't have stripes, sometimes you're like, well, I don't even know where I'm at. How do you uh, award those things to your students? 
So like in karate, they have obviously have belt tests um, right. for our tests. It's always just sparring and, and the knowledge that they know. Hmm. Um, I have to take everyone. Everyone has a different expectation. So mm-hmm. if you're a hobbyist, you get promoted differently than if you're a competitor. Mm-hmm. If you're a competitor, you get promoted based on your tournament, like mm-hmm. your performances in tournament and stuff like that. If you're a hobbyist, you get promoted based on how long you've been training, the knowledge that you know, and how you perform on the mat. So like, obviously, if someone's like 80, I can't promote them. Like, I can't expect them to be like a 20-year-old blue belt, mm-hmm. you know? So everyone has their different expectations. So then that being said, it seems to me like, and, and this isn't specific to sector, that there can be different types of, let's just say, black belts, right? There can Definitely. be different types of black belts, right? So the hobbyist black belt, you know, always the example I hear is could be possibly, and depends on their age too, obviously, be crushed by the competitive blue belt. Yes. So like I've, I've rolled with like some of these, uh, I rolled with the blue belt pan champion recently. It's tough, you know? Mm-hmm. super tough so it's like i can see how that my kid he could beat some black belts definitely like a, a good share of black belts actually so like, then that being said there, that means there's different types of black belts we can say a black belt's a black belt but they're not right yeah they're not there's some that are fighters there's some that are teachers and there's some that are hobbyists let's use you as an example although you are an outlier when you were given your black belt there wasn't the dearth of information knowledge and technique and evolution of the game that there is now right yes and kids starting even younger than when you started now it seems like a super high level i mean even the teaching styles have in the strategies and just everything obviously gets better so it's it's kind of almost a mischaracterization in a way right comparing like an old mustang to whatever a tesla now or something like that yeah Mm mm-hmm yeah so there, there are different there are different levels you know and mm-hmm. as a teacher i got to keep up with that i had to keep up with the evolution of jiu-jitsu just as much as a competitor does what makes a great academy the vibe the vibe of the gym i think is number one i always say that if you have a big jar of water and you put one drop mm-hmm. of food coloring in there it changes the whole color so it's very important that you have a good vibe and you can't allow those people to come. Some people come in and change the vibe completely because mm. it just takes one drop, one person. Mm-hmm. Creating a good vibe, creating a vibe where people don't feel forced to do things, where they have fun, you know, because people don't go to jujitsu to not have fun. You've heard about instructors being cult-like, uh, instructors pushing people. I mean, you're supposed to push people, but like pushing everyone to like compete and fight and be tough all the time sometimes is, is not the way. I think mm-hmm. the way is to have a good vibe, uh, make sure everyone has fun. And if you want to compete, you compete. If you don't, you don't. So jujitsu is for everyone. That sounds super challenging because it sounds like it's it's literally customizable by per student. Yeah. You've got God knows how many students and then you have to multiply by that, right? So how do I cater? So basically it's like, how do I cater to everybody? That's, that's the trick. Our competitors will, so like I was saying, we get ready for the kids' pants. Those kids are going to be going against each other all day, every day. There's no easy matches with them. Mm-hmm. And then we have other kids that are not really interested in jiu-jitsu, are not really interested in to that, to that extent. And they'll be one with the, their group. And when the kids' pants are over, then they'll go back together and they'll start training with each other again. Let's say hypothetically so, you're a 60-year-old student. You know, he's what, master's mm-hmm. five, master's six, or whatever it is. Yeah. And he's like, I can't do two days physically. I just can't. Or you're obviously, yeah. how you uh, adjusting to that? Oh, yeah. So if they're competitors, like at that age, I mean, that's why there's a master's division. They're for people that are older or they have families or they have other jobs or they have other things to do. But if you're competing in adults, you need to give me twice a day every day. 
So Sector, how'd the name Sector even come about? I used to be a Mortal Kombat competitor, actually, like uh, esports. That's insane. That's right. That's right. That's so crazy. E-sports People don't know athlete. that about you. No. So I used to be very big into Mortal Kombat. I still am, but not to the same extent. So Sector is a character on Mortal Kombat. It's like a, re- a red robot. And all the characters are ruthless. But Sector, obviously is also like a zone like if you ever watched um hunger games like they have different sectors so i thought like oh sector felt like it rolled off the tongue nicely it made sense like a sector like for a franchise franchise too like there's sector chino sector corona sector guatemala sector this sector that you know and also the name starts with the s so like the s and my name starts with the s very cool so sean your thoughts on the uh, state of jujitsu right now and what excites you about it Man, going back to the kids, man, the kids are getting crazy good, huh? Jesus. Yeah, they, it's insane. Yeah, so it's I'm insane. seeing like these like seven, eight, nine-year-olds. I'm like, dude, these Even kids there. are like uh, kind of like blue belt level. Yeah. Like, it's crazy. Like these kids are playing De La Hiva. These kids are passing correctly. These kids are doing their takedowns correctly. They're starting wow. to defending correctly. I'm like, how old are you? They're like, I'm seven. It's like, <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where is this? Why wasn't I this good when I was like 15? (laughs) You ever seen, you ever seen those like eight year olds that are better than like a lot of the adults in the adults class? Oh yeah. That's crazy. So that's kind of like crazy for me. That's what kind of is, is, that's my goal is to make those kids super good right now. It's amazing. I'll watch some of these competitions, you know, online and it's like, it's like miniature versions of professionals. Yeah. So now, now we're starting to see like these kids that we saw five years ago, 10 years ago, like I remember seeing the Rotolo brothers when they were yellow belts. Wow. Yellow, yellow belts. And I was watching them. I was like, man, these kids stick with it. They're going to be good. Now there's like a bunch of those kids that are Rotolo brother level, like out there. There's like, you see them at the kids' pants. I'm like, oh my God, like these kids are going to wreck me in like five years. <laughs> yeah. It's remarkable, isn't it? Yeah. The, yeah, the kids game. So like I see blue belts now versus like, okay, so in 2007 or no, 2008, I got second in the world. I still believe today I should have got first. I, the referee was not paying attention, but it is what it is. If I was there to take myself out of 2007 or 2008 and put that same blue belt now, I don't know if I'd make it past like the first or second round. Wow. It's that, that advanced now. There was no De La Hiva. There was no, there was no crazy open guards. Half was the thing sometimes. Yeah. I remember the progression. Yep. It's it's insane. So are there any, you know, particular games that you're excited about playing now or technique? I've been so involved in the gym, it's not what I'm focusing on anymore. It's about teaching big now. Mm. So my focus is like teaching the kids and teaching the adults to learn their techniques now. Since like I know a lot of, I know a lot of the techniques. Obviously I still need to work on some areas, but for me, it's more creating my own training partners at the gym. So mm. I think right now what I'm working on is my daily HIVA. If I had to say one thing I'm working on, it'd be my daily HIVA. Hmm. So what do you feel were or are your strong points? And as you mentioned, daily HIVA, I don't know if that's something that you're sort of insinuating. That's what you need to shore up. Yeah, I needed to, I need to work on that. That's, hmm. that's one of my, I think, weaker areas, like playing daily HIVA. If I need daily HIVA, I'm fine. Playing daily HIVA is kind of a area I need to work on. My strongest areas, uh, bottom half, for sure. And then passing actually and just general like flexibility open guard so i'd say my strongest area is actually bottom half i'm making a dvd with bj day fanatics about the half guard too awesome i have this one system that i i use i learned it up in san francisco and kind of made it my own so it's called the giggler it's a half guard sweep and it works all the time like it's like i want two points i get two points with the sweep i know uh, you've got an old video on uh, i think youtube or something like that too 
Yeah, Giggler's such a great suite, man. I know, so lazy too. Yeah, I know. Just lazy. You just sit there and wait for them. Yeah, yeah. Wait for them to make a mistake, and they just make a mistake every time. Is this going to be your first instructional? The first instructional I actually make money off of, yes. No, <laughs> no, I've done more. I've done a couple here and there. So I'll teach a move here and there, but I've never done like a whole system for a big company like this. Well, we're stoked, man, because we you have so much to offer the community. I know that. And you know, we've been waiting for something like this from you for, for some time now. I know you have, and as I mentioned before to other people, like an old YouTube, old YouTube content out there, which it's still rather evergreen, actually. Some of the stuff is really insightful that you have. And maybe someday when you're not inundated with kids to teach and, and a giant business to run, you can uh, do more of that. Otherwise, we'll just have to keep buying your BGJ Fanatics uh, material. Yeah. Well, I feel like techniques never really get old. I feel like the old techniques, like, yeah. so if you watch all my, all my old videos, they're still yeah. applicable today. There's certain techniques that come out and people are like, wow, that's crazy. I was like, dude, they used to do that like 10 years ago. Right, Everyone right. used to do that 10 years ago. And now it's right. amazing again. Yeah. So it's like every technique comes full circle. I think what I find really interesting are just how people are chaining these things. You know, everyone has sort of a unique sort of chain. But it's funny you mentioned that because, yeah, Michael Lear Jr. And I asked him the same question. I'm like, what have you been into lately? And he's like, you know, he was kind of almost embarrassed to admit it. But he's like, um, just fundamentals, man. And the old school stuff. Sure. I said, that's like the new hotness. You know, everyone's coming back to basics. That's right. That's where I've been forever, man. Yeah. Basic and that's your game. That's like your game. This is monstrous yeah, so. basics game. I'm sure that Mike Lair, because he just had his gym opened up and he's starting to teach more and yeah. he's getting these brand new students, yeah. you know? I know he used to teach at Autos, but I don't know yeah. exactly what class he taught. Right. But now it's actually like his own business. Right. So now he's like, oh man, it changes. It's pretty exciting. Well, I'm excited for him that he has that thing. So he's yeah. going to see how it is to run a business and, and do that. It's pretty exciting, you know, just having your own thing, you know, not always being under somebody because oh. it's like a blank canvas for you. Yeah. Now he's creating students for himself, not for like someone else. Having your own team, I couldn't even imagine. That's that's wild. Yeah. Yeah, and I I get a chance to like teach people what really like changed my life because jiu-jitsu really changed my life completely. So, it's like an honor for me to to be able to teach people what really changed me. I have one student especially and he's 7 and he just reminds me of myself so much and I'm seeing how jiu-jitsu is helping him and and he's very good at jiu-jitsu. Like he's seven hmm. and he um, throws triangles, throws arm bars, plays spider guard, plays a lasso. And is like, but I know he has like ADHD. I know for, I know for sure. Like he has something mm-hmm. and it's just, he's very good at jujitsu and just having someone like that be good at something. It means so much to them and their mm-hmm. parents too. I get a lot of like um, fulfillment out of that. That's beautiful, man. Let's talk about your injuries. What's been sort of like your worst injuries? What are your nagging injuries? And, and how are you dealing with these things? Or how have you? My nagging injuries? I don't really have any. That's I good. Think my lower back, I think my lower back just kind of, if I stand up too long, like when I'm training, nothing bugs me. So I don't really have any nag- nagging injuries that keep me from training. I more have injuries that keep me from standing up for hours or walking around for hours. So like my lower back would really get tired. My worst injury was my knee. I tore my meniscus. Being stubborn, so make sure you guys always tap when you get caught in a submission. Lesson learned. I had surgery on that. I had 30% removed from my knee, but I bounced back. So now my knee is completely fine. I haven't had any other serious injuries, really. I've hurt my knees a couple times and hurt my elbows a couple times and knocked Mm. myself out once. 
not to do flying triangle on YouTube. You go check it out. You brought up the competition class and two days and yeah. strength and conditioning. What do you consider strength and conditioning? What does your strength and conditioning look like? I don't do strength and conditioning anymore. Um, that was actually the area that I think was my downfall. I was never really a big fan of lifting weights and mm-hmm. um, you know getting super strong. Back when I was like a blue belt and purple belt, you didn't have to be super strong to win tournaments now. You could rely on just technique and win. But now it's just so advanced that everyone's so good that like a stronger athlete is a better athlete now. Mm. So I think that was like my thing that I needed to work on. But I used to have a personal trainer. I hated him. He made me work so hard, <laughs> but it paid off. Like I did strength and conditioning for the Kumite. That was like one of the tournaments I actually did strength and conditioning for. That was one of the few that I did strength and conditioning for. And that's why wow. I did so good, I think. And I did, every time I've done strength and conditioning, I've won. Every time I didn't, I would maybe win, but maybe lose. If you could be a white belt again, what would you do differently? I'd be more open. As a white belt, I was fine because I was very eager to learn hmm. and I'd always be open. And I wouldn't really have an ego. But then I started to develop some ego problems when I was a purple and brown belt. So I'd rather go back to myself as a purple and brown belt and give myself advice hmm. than, a purple, than a white belt. White belts are fine. They just, they learn. But I started developing an unhealthy ego. I would uh, get mad when someone would beat me and it would really close off my game and prevent me from learning. Sometimes I would push through with just strength where, where instead I, I needed to be open, more open and teachable. I see that as sort of a recurring pattern. I'm glad you brought up those belts because I don't know why that is. Why is that, do you think, a recurring pattern with some people? Well, for me, it was the first thing I was actually very, very good at. And then, um, you know, I'm 19, in my early 20s. It's different. You're immature at the time and and you can't really see the bigger picture sometimes. Hmm. So all the testosterone, like, like when you're a teenager too, will add, you know how it is when you're younger. Sometimes it's it's hard to change your mentality and until you're older, you start to see the bigger picture. I used to have problems with my ego at brown, purple and brown. And I think that really stunted some of my growth. Every match in the gym would be like a fight. So I'd only play my A game the whole time. And then where I should have been working on other things, I should have been working on something else instead of just playing my A game over and over and over and over. So if you're playing your A game every day, all day, you're never going to progress. You're already good at it. You need to work on something else that you're not good on, good at. Thing is, my ego, you know, I would work on something that I wasn't good at and I would start to lose and I would revert back to my A game and I'd be like, screw this, I'm just going to do this again. I would go back to myself at purple belt instead of white belt. That's a good advice for those guys. How about for the blue belt? Man, the blue belt is, it is just grueling. I think that A game tip really applies to blue belt too. Just the blue belts have a little bit more trouble because when they try something new, they're still in that stage where they get their guard pass and they get stuck in bottom side control forever, you know, <laughs> even with big white belts. So like a blue belt versus a big white belt, make one mistake you're stuck i think as a brown belt purple and brown belt it's easier for you to work on things because you have the ability to recover to the position again over and over and over whereas a blue belt you kind of get stuck so blue belt is the first time you're actually going to really see your plateau and that's going to suck i I was there too you have to endure it you have to work on new things and the longer you take to to realize that the suckier is going to be because it's working on a new thing for sure you're going to get your butt kicked but you have to you have to make something else your A game. Then you have two A games. That's great advice. I was going to ask you about that plateau thing and if you've hit them and, and how did you definitely get through that? Now I hit plateaus all the time because it's kind of like weightlifting, like diminishing returns. The better you get, the slower you get better. Mm. So obviously if I kept on getting good, like at the speed I was from white to blue, I'd be like world champion and undefeated forever, you know? Right. But that's not how it works. 
getting past the plateau takes a lot of willpower. And my advice, right when you feel that that plateau's hit, start working on something else. Start asking questions, start asking higher boss, like, hey, what technique do you like to do from here? And start to mimic them. Start to watch people that you struggle with, watch them bar with people that beat them and see how they get beat. Try to implement that and mimic that. Because jujitsu is all about mimicking. It's all about mimicking your what you see or what you learn. Speaking of like watching other people, can you talk about just some other practitioners that you admire and why? I don't know them personally, <laughs> but I admire Lucas Lepre and Marcelo Garcia. I think I, I, I admire them because their technique is so good, but I also mm. admire them because they're so soft-spoken and they don't like to really put themselves out, out there as much on social media and stuff. And which mm-hmm. is very, they seem like very chill people. Those two I look up to. Other than that, the only two people I look up to are, are my mom and my dad. That's it. So lots of great insight today, man. Awesome stuff. I'm, I'm blown away by the Guatemala origin story too. That whole oh, that thing. was fun. That's, yeah, that was fun. You lived fun. in Guatemala for a month? For a whole month. Wow. Just for fun. Just to teach, going around teaching. And that was fun. I, I went there a couple of times. And then um, what a I had this story. team in this, in this city called Shella. It's like the Fresno of California. Like it's just in the middle. But Shella is just like actually kind of in the middle of nowhere. Is is one of the big bigger cities there, but jujitsu, there's like one or two gyms to hmm. in the whole city. BJJ fanatics. Yeah. yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna start filming in June, June sixth. Wow. Cool, man. So who knows when that'll be released? Okay, looking forward to that. Do you know the name of it yeah. or, or working title or or can you even talk about it yet or, or what? Yeah. I can talk about it. Yeah. So I'm gonna be teaching the Gagler sweep. So I have about like twenty five to thirty variations of that sweep. Wow. It's a little bit more advanced than just turning your hips and knocking the person, knocking (laughs) the person over. It's it's, what what to do when they pressure you, what to do when they when you've hit them so many times and they know the pressure's coming. What to do when they stop that? So it's just a chain. There's a lot of tricks in there that I've never really showed. Super excited to see that. Yeah, definitely can't wait to get that one. All right, Sean, thanks so much for your time and being on the show. Where can the listeners find out more about you, your socials, sector website, etc.? So you can find me at, at Sean Roberts. BJJ, so it's S E A N, or at Sector BJJ, it's S E K T R. Um, those are the two places, or on Facebook. I'm more, more active on Facebook than anywhere else. Social media is the devil. <laughs> <laughs> it really is, man. Where people go to argue. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much for being on the show, man. I appreciate your time. Good to talk to you. All right. Thanks, everyone, for watching and listening out there. I'm Adolfo Ferranda. Check us out on all the socials, Forever White Belt. Thanks so much.